Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment. And right now, I'm calling in from this year's edition of one of the major events of the Fall Fest calendar, the Toronto International Film Festival. For the next few days, I'll be rallying some of the best critics in town to talk about all the titles that are premiering here. So you know the drill. Follow along on the Film Comment podcast and also keep your eye on the Film Comment letter for dispatches, interviews and more from Toronto. It is day three at the Toronto Film Festival and I am gathered in my fancy schmancy podcast recording studio suite here, which is the basement of the Hyatt. I have managed to snag three chairs and uh, I've, uh, as usual, managed to somehow bait a couple people into, into talking movies with me here. So we have a new guest on the podcast today, which... Uh, I'm always super excited about when we have someone new, especially on a festival podcast. So, Saffron, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, hello. Uh, I'm Saffron Mave. I am a film comment contributor as well as a film critic for a bunch of other fun publications. Um, Yeah, I'm also a film academic and a programmer, and I'm based in Toronto. Wonderful to, to have you here for your film comment podcast debut. Thanks kindly. And we have a pod veteran... You've just heard his voice yesterday, but you know you want more. Yeah, I'm Adam Naiman. I'm overseeing the capsule coverage for CinemaScope, which Safran didn't mention, despite being one of our very fine contributors. <laughs> I love CinemaScope. Yes. CinemaScope. I'm going to drop that throughout. I love CinemaScope yes. so much. Cin- CinemaScope being a Canadian film magazine. I also write for American publications like The Ringer and Film Comment, British publications like Sight and Sound. And then I just mind my own business because you know what? I am old and this is a festivaling is for the young. <laughs> I just walk through Toronto with my head down going, none of my business. None of my business. Well, you have, I think the movies are, are very much your the business. Movies, the movies are our business, yeah, nothing yeah. And you, you, I know you have thoughts about plenty of stuff. Well, um, you know, every time I go to a festival these days, an international festival, I try to do at least one podcast that's just local guests because I always just, you know, like hearing people from the town talk about um you know, the just the feel of the festival in their hometown. Adam already gave us a little bit. I mean, as someone who has been coming to TIFF for more than two decades, he gave us a really nice <sighs> kind of so <laughs> nice kind of summary of how it's changed and how he's feeling. Uh, but I thought that maybe we could start you both off today with one of the major Canadian titles uh, showing here. That is Adam Egoyan's new film, Seven Veils. Yeah, such an easy film to synopsize, right, Saffron? You want to do? You want to? You want to give a shot synopsizing <laughs> sure. Seven Veils? Sure. Um, so, <laughs> uh, Seven Veils is a narrativized version of Salome, which Adam McGoin put on at the Canadian Opera Center um, 
earlier this year. I believe I saw it in February, I think. Um, and he's got Amanda Seyfried kind of as his as his stand-in. She is a theater director who's remounting the opera Salome um, on her late mentor's request. And yeah, the film starts to layer kind of the, all the unrequited gazes and the uncomfortable bits of Salome into her life, um, especially the other women in the film as well. Um, yeah, it kind of becomes her like very own John the Baptist kiss. Yeah, and it's a very, I mean, Adam McGoyan carries a lot of weight in this city and in this national mm. film culture. And people have joked in the past, it's a disproportionate amount of weight because we've never been able to replicate him or Cronenberg. Like these are hard auteurs to kind of clone. And because we don't have a commercial cinema, they kind of have to bat for like the art house and the commercial cinema mm. simultaneously. And that coincided with a run of Adam not making, let's say the best films of his life for a while. So I think this one is kind of being prepackaged a little bit as a return to form and very happily, I think it, Kind of is okay. Like it gave me a lot of those, the the a lot of nostalgic feelings for a period where he was sort of like astride the Canadian art scene, including the first time he staged Salome in the nineties, which mm. he did around the same time he made Sweet Hereafter. But I also am like a you know like I'm a tourist, so it's like fun to see the repetitiveness. So it's like you've got like incest and surveillance <laughs> and small towns. And flashbacks and layers of narrative, and it's 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 fun because these are the things that he's really kind of fascinated by, mm. and he keeps finding interesting configurations for them. I know that when I interviewed him for Cinemascope, mm -hmm. which we did a piece on, I love Cinemascope. Saffron loves Cinemascope. <laughs> hey, don't forget you are on the Film Common <laughs> podcast, okay? I love Film Common as well. <laughs> well, we we talked about how in Canadian cinema. And as I say those words, your audience is tuning out en masse when I say the no, words Canadian film. They, they've come here for Canadian that, cinema. <laughs> that, uh, that a lot of the really interesting Canadian movies of the last few years, not all, but a lot, they reject narrative mm. or they find end runs around narrative. They're like docufictions. Mm. They're hybrid films. Almost any drama is like, by definition, melodrama here because we don't tell stories in that way. And Egoyan is so in love with narrative mm. and the possibilities and just the architecture of narrative. Like how weird can I jerry-rig my storytelling? And I respond to that because I miss it. Mm -hmm. And this particular, as Saffron was sort of inventorying them, the la the layers, the, va uh -huh. the veils of the movie that he sort of you know, puts into play with each other. It's sophisticated. It's a reminder of how good he is at engineering this stuff when he's on his what game. What are some of the layers in this movie? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm just curious, like, what... I'm also curious because I think maybe it was you, Adam, who described it to me yesterday as one of the many movies here that are Tar-esque. Okay, well, first of all, you... Okay, so Sa Saffron, who's written excellent capsules, she emailed me last week. This isn't this isn't too much information. No, no, it? no. She wrote me last week filing a capsule. She's like, why is every movie at this festival Tar? Okay, so, oh, so it came from, from her. So what are the other Tar core movies before we talk about Yeah, maybe you, uh, Saffron, you need to explain this, this little characterization. I'm looking at my notes right now, which literally say Tar Light, because I knew that yeah. Adam would bring this up. Um, so there's two films that I um, was very fortunate to capsule, but realized I felt like I was watching the same film over and over again, um, which was Days of Happiness, which was Chloe Robichaud's new film. Which it, is Canadian. Which is Canadian. Mm. Woo! Um, 
which quite literally features a lesbian conductor in a relationship with her cellist who Ooh. is gearing up to conduct Mahler. And I feel like that's a, a really terrible coincidence. Um, and the yeah. film is about quite a bit more than that. It's about like her toxic relationship with her father, who's also her agent and um, kind of divorcing herself from that part of her life while still holding on to her job and her profession as a conductor and her love for that. Um, but it, it can't really escape the, the tarisms that are like <laughs> built into it. Um, and then there's not a word, which is uh, Hannah Slack. I, I want to say that's Norwegian. I could also be very wrong. Um, but it starts with a, a woman conducting Mahler's Fifth Symphony. So she immediately has established herself as this kind of like tar figure. But also both w women are just like categorically cold and distant from the people in their lives. Like it's it's an Wait, unfortunate overlap. They they are unlikable women. Oh. <laughs> Every woman is likable. I love women. I love all women. I like women. Just, I, I, women I are fine. So far as to say love, but <laughs> anyway, sorry, go on. Um, but yeah, there were just all these layers where I was like, first of all, why is everyone a conductor? All uh -huh. of a sudden, why are we only conducting Mahler? Why are all of these stories telling us that we can somehow get closer to Mahler? <laughs> and why is this all circling back to Todd Field? So, yeah, I'm a little tired of it. Uh, and I do. Tired, maybe. Huh? <laughs> Jesus. Sorry. <laughs> um, I'm at that point. <laughs> I honestly didn't feel too much tar in Seven Veils. Like, uh -huh. structurally, there's, there's a lot of that. Like, it's a very kind of cold film, I think, to watch. But... I don't really feel like Janine, Amanda Seyfried's character, was was much of a tar. She wasn't assertive well, enough. It's a Canadian tar in that it's very politically correct. Yeah. <laughs> where she is not a perpetrator of favoritism and abuse, but she's implied as maybe a groomee. Okay. And because Adam is very into, interested in doubling and layering, it's very, I wouldn't say confusing. I want to use positive adjectives with the movie. It's compelling, not confusing. Beguiling. Beguiling. That the... <laughs> Con that the previous conductor, who, as Saffron said, is asking her to restage his opera, which, sidebar, is in some ways not such a nice request because it basically means do as I did, mm -hmm. right? His influence on her is similar to the influence of her unseen absent father, who Agoyan, you know, makes... Uh, you see him in these video flashbacks where you see him making these videos with his little girl that were incorporated into Egoyne's real production of Salome and which are so strange because they add these layers of implied incest which are in the Salome myth and narrative, but they're also like so reminiscent of Exotica and Sweet Hereafter. And that's what I mean by the veils where it's not just the levels within the movie that everyone's going to watch, but for the Egoyan hardcore you know, fans or the people who know the body of work, it has a kind of highlight reel aspect which is like he's coming to terms with a lot of these things in his career but yeah i mean unlike tar it's politically correct it's about a survivor rather than a perpetrator it also shows that you have a lot less money in private jets if you work for the canadian opera company <laughs> than for the berlin philharmonic because you see all the canadian opera company stuff just down the street from where we are mm -hmm. which is shot interestingly It's not documentary, but Egoyan was able to shoot because he's in the space rehearsing the opera. Right. So right. lots of people from that organization and the actors kind of play themselves. And then there's a second tar strand, though, because then there is a subplot, because Adam loves subplots, uh -huh. about uh, undue advances, which, of course, get captured on video and which become a whole other strand of the movie. Like, And I haven't even mentioned how much of this movie revolves around a prosthetic severed head, <laughs> which is both the symbol and key prop of the film. 
Okay. Just saying. Well, How so are yeah. you feeling, Devika? Um, <laughs> dizzy. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, I thought that I would take this moment to actually talk about another Canadian giant who had a little moment at the festival yesterday at the first shorts program in the oh, wavelength yeah. section, which Saffron and I were both at. And it just like severed head, dizzying Canadian filmmaker. <laughs> I just, my mind made this sudden associative leap right now. But the Wavelands program, which is, uh, you know, Toronto's kind of, I guess, the experimental section uh, of the program. The shorts, the first shorts program yesterday had a lot of more like structuralist type uh, films uh, on some on 16. And as a surprise, uh, Andrea Picard, one of the programmers of the section, announced that the that particular program would be dedicated to Michael Snow and that they would open it with his eight-minute short standard time. And his partner, Peggy Gale, was in the audience. So it was just like a very special moment. Of course, Wavelength is named after Wavelength. Um, and I had actually never seen standard time projected before. And I found it just so... I mean, it, it felt special to watch it in Toronto. Um, just that aura of watching a Michael Snow film here projected, again, in this program called Wavelengths. But I just wanted to give a little shout out to how simple and beautiful it was. And to be frank, I had some mixed um, reactions to the shorts program that followed. A lot of it was very beautiful, but Standard Time really showed like how much a filmmaker like him could make out of how little and just like movement, just movement. I mean, this is always like Michael Snow's thing, like how movement can become so narratively dense. And so just for people who haven't seen it, it's a camera swiveling and panning around a room um, back and forth and sometimes up and down. And you hear a conversation in the background and you kind of dip in and out of the conversation. So the context isn't fully clear. Um, I just, I don't know, Saffron, what did you think? Had you seen it before? I had not. I've yeah. somewhat blasphemously only seen Wavelength from Michael Snow. So that was my first time seeing Standard Time. And I felt very thankful you, to be seeing Are you it. allowed to have Canadian citizenship? Allegedly. I was born in the States. So maybe oh, okay. that's why. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was my first time seeing it. And I felt pretty grateful that I was seeing it in a theater. Um, it was it, like it really did. I got very emotional and I'm not quite sure why. I was talking to my friend afterwards and I was like, I can't really pinpoint my feelings yeah. right now. Um, because it was, to me, the best short in that program. For newer filmmakers to have to, like, have their films preceded by Michael Snow is, like, kind of rough, because, <laughs> yeah. Yeah it's, yeah, it's yeah, it's like when, you know, Jim Carrey drops by the comedy store, <laughs> those five minutes, and then the comedian's like, oh, shit. Yeah, exactly, because now there's... Or they yeah. can say, Michael Snow opened for me. Which, oh. is pretty, which, is, which is which is pretty yeah. cool. I would judge them if they said that. <laughs> yeah, that's Intensely. Yeah. Um, but no, I liked, especially kind of in conversation with Seven Veils, that idea of like process and repetition. And once you kind of establish that, how adding like one small variable, like the naked woman in, <laughs> in that one shot, or just a slight deviation of camera movement, it actually catches you as a viewer. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was having like a very <laughs> like weird somatic response to that film. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I loved yeah. it. It was beautifully depicted. Somatic responses, right? I think that's what I felt that it was it, it was so simple, but it felt very dense and it just it drew me in because it was so dynamic, the mix of stasis and dynamism and then the voices. 
you really did feel like you're dropped into something, like dropped into a space, a conversation, but also dropped into a kind of cosmic experience or something. I'm I'm like reaching for words that don't sound. That's um, how, how I felt watching Nickelback. <laughs> oh my god! Dropped into a no. That's I mean, such an insult to Michael Snow. <laughs> no, I mean, but what, but what? But something that De- something David said that I think is wonderful to mention is that the program being called Wavelengths, yeah. it doesn't just honor Snow. I mean, it speaks to how much of a load bearing uh, thing experimental cinema is. Which, which again ties into the discussion with Agoyan, not because he's experimental, he's borderline experimental at times, but that we don't have the narrative tradition in this country. It's a very different industry, right? right? So doc and animation and experimental and hybridity between those. I mean, that was really the bread and butter of Canada for an awful long time. And so for TIFF to have the program named, you know, After Snow, which is then shows films that are totally different than the ones he made. You know, it's, yeah. it, it, it's one of the best judged things about the festival historically and it's interesting because whenever people visit that's what they're always at Mm -hmm. like our community of critics they don't miss the wavelength shorts right absolutely yeah it's like a must see here for sure um so from canada let's cross the border into america uh and talk a little bit about a, a kind of big toronto title that adam and i caught this morning american fiction directed by cord jefferson starring jeffrey wright um I don't know, Ad, uh, Adam, did you want to do a synopsis? So I'm very wary of movies with American in the title because <laughs> they seem to be, they're trying to have the last word on like beauty or idiots or honey <laughs> or hi-fi, you know, or whatever. Yeah. And um, I think that this is a film that I filed a capsule uh, for it this morning and then, you know, kind of. Didn't wish I'd taken more time to write mm-hmm. on it, but more like I'm very interested to see what people are going to say. Because here's what I can factually report about the screening. Let's talk about the screening before the movie. We were both there, right? That yeah. Two hours of a press screening of people laughing consistently. Right? People were like laughing so hard. <laughs> so, so lots of laughing. Yeah. No walkouts. No, yeah. Right? And you know, seemingly people with it. My question is not whether it's a good sign that a comedy got laughs. I w- wonder whether a really vicious satire would not get some walkouts. Mm. In a way, this is a, f- a film that has a very tough assignment, which is to be crowd-pleasing and somewhat serrated at the same time. Well, let's let's say what the film is yeah. about. So it's an adaptation of a novel by Percival Everett called Erasure. I haven't read the novel, but it basically stars Jeffrey Wright as a black writer, a novelist in America. He's not super famous or anything, but ten, so put, ten, tenuously tenured. Yeah, ten, very tenuously tenured and um you know, is basically he resents this um this dem- seeming demand from the book industry, the book market, that his books be more black, like be about African-American life, sort of whatever that means. Whereas he is someone who doesn't believe in writing like, quote unquote, about race. And so a lot of things happen in the book, but like to put it very briefly, it's like a bamboozled uh, is set in the literary world yeah. today. Basically, he writes under a pseudonym as a joke a caricature of the kind of black book that white readers and agents lap up, which is 
full of stereotypes and, you know, just like overdoing all these archetypes, yeah, that you see in TV shows and movies and books. Um, I think he lists all the tropes in, in one line of dialogue and it's like, you know, deadbeat father, drug dealers, uh, police brutality, like all of it. And surprise, surprise, the book is sells like gangbusters and everyone's really into it. And that's like the spine of the movie, but there's other stuff that happens. And that's what's interesting about it is that the sp- it is the spine of the movie. It's also less of the movie than you'd think because... Much less much than less. I expected, yeah. And this is where I, I, I find myself stuck between giving it the benefit of the doubt for being very subtle or also just being frustrated with how accessible it is and kind of bland because yeah. he ends up being in a movie, in a story that is actually not the kind of crappy exploitative fiction that he doesn't want to write. But it's also not the narratives that he had escaped into with his previous novels by dealing with, you know, Persian history or whatever. Yeah. He is in the kind of book that if he could only sit, story, sorry, that if he would only sit down and write it, it wouldn't fall into those traps. Like the story he's living. Living. Which just also to ex- explain, like if there's also a movie deal that comes his way and yeah. he tries to turn like what he's experiencing into a movie. But he, but he, you know he's yeah. like he's dealing with a mother who's ill. He's dealing with a brother who's estranged and has issues with the family stemming from sexual orientation. There's the issues of being a tenured professor in a sort of very politically correct moment. These are all things that he might make the substance of his fiction if he wasn't so angry. And I thought that Wright did a very good job of making that anger funny and relatable because he's it's just really great ambient contempt yeah. for everything. <laughs> While also seeing that it's not really doing much for him. Yeah. And I like that. The jokes, though, even though they're funny, they're very gentle. I think what you said, it's such a good way that you framed it. Like, shouldn't, shouldn't there be walkouts? But it's not even walkouts, but it's just so tame, this movie. And I went in expecting it to be a lot more provocative. It touches upon so many interesting issues just on the surface. Like, it truly just skims them for some gentle little, you know, um, jokes or parodies. The central question of this movie is, you know, is it, do, if a black writer writes the sort of stuff that a white hegemonic market wants to read, is that inherently bad? You know, can you write about, the real hardship faced by black people in, in, in America without it being poverty porn. I mean, these are like real questions to tussle with. This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Iconic directors, emerging auteurs, there's always something new to discover. Plus, get a movie ticket every week to see a hand-selected film in theaters with Movie Go. Previous picks include critically acclaimed films like Decision to Leave, EO, Passages, and All Quiet on the Western Front. This week's movie is Rotting in the Sun. Director Sebastian Silva turns the camera on himself and influencer Jordan Firstman in this dark meta-comedy. As Chris Shields writes in his recent film comment review, The apotheosis of Rotting in the Sun's visually and emotionally disorienting waltz of high and lowbrow impulses comes in the film's final scene, which blends an homage to Antonioni's red desert with the banal frustrations of a life lived via shitty apps. It's a perfect encapsulation of Silva's modus operandi, embedding an unsentimental interrogation of the possibilities and impossibilities of contemporary communication within a gleefully transgressive work of bad taste. Mubi Go is now available in select U.S. cities. 
Discover great cinema on the big screen and at home. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash G-O. I thought I'd give a shout out to a terrific writer, Ashley Clark, his book on Bamboozled. One of the things Ash points out in that book is that that movie's quality is sort of bound up in its disastrous reception. A worse movie would be better received. And Bamboozled is the sort of movie that people really truly hated, which it's not, you don't just want to be totally juvenile and be like, and that's why it's good. But you can certainly say, and that's why what it did was very uncomfortable. I'm predicting on air here, and I'm sure I'll be wrong, that this is going to win the TIFF Audience Award. And in some ways, while that's, this is not a very fair thing to say, that'll kind of be the last word. On no, what but it is. I think it is fair. I think that's why I brought up Bamboozled because Bamboozled is actually discomforting, especially when it came out. Its satire is biting. You know, it it really shows you these like kinds of uncomfortable situations or not even uncomfortable, but these like catch-22 situations created by like racial capitalism Um especially in the media industry, right? And like the sale of identity, like how much value there is in being able to package and sell identity and stories of trauma. And there is a there's kind of a wonderful little situation set up in this film in American fiction where Jeffrey Wright walks into a like a book talk by this newly successful author of Black Women played by Issa Rae, who I love and I think who's like very funny. And she's written one of those books that he just thinks are extremely pandering, stereotypical. It's a very funny scene where she reads out from that book. And later they have a confrontation. And to me, that was going to be the hinge of the movie, right? Like two extremely smart writers, one of whom says, I don't have any problem with writing what the market wants. She also says, like, I did research on my characters and people actually have hard lives. And then the Jeffrey Wright character who's just like, has his head up his ass, but it is also correct that you maybe should not just give in to what the market wants because the market is dictated by racist, you know, forces. And you have this little confrontation and it just like kind of fizzles out in like a kind of uh, sitcomish joke, right? It doesn't, I was hoping to go see them really go at their throat, each other's throats and get somewhere with this debate. Full, full marks, I should say, to Sterling Brown. Not just for being funny, but there's no reason he needs to look that good to play that part and to be that physically on I was display. I'm so distracted. I'm not. I'm not even gonna lie. Like just, <laughs> just, just kudos to that man because he's playing Wright's brother, and you know it's a character who actually has a couple of tragic layers, and Brown plays them exactly right, which is he doesn't he, he doesn't play them for sad. No. He's really funny. I don't know if you've seen him in the show This Is Us which was like one of my favorite comfort shows. And I loved him in that. And it's very much like he's a brother in a fucked up family in that. And I was expecting him to play a similar character here because he's very serious and like sort of melodramatic in that show. And I was just sort of like... He's, 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 very, so, he's very funny. In he's, this. he's so funny. And he just brings this bite to the movie that it otherwise lacks. You know, he's just like very risque and... His character just acts in ways that are both irresponsible, but like are wounded and are not, you can't square them. You know, you can't just say like, oh, it's because of homophobia or trauma that he's acting like this. He's just like kind of a wild character. And insanely ripped. And 
Yeah, he looks beautiful. <laughs> just, just, just saying. We can, yeah. we can move on. I'm just saying. Yeah. So that's American fiction. I'm really curious to see how this is going to play, and I'm really curious to see how, frankly, how black writers uh, will take up, you know, this movie because obviously it speaks to a lot of things that apply to just culture right now in general. Um, but I thought maybe we can go to Saffron. Um, you saw a movie that I missed at Cannes. Speaking of really beautiful uh, male specimens, <laughs> you saw the Pedro Almodovar short, uh, The Strange Way of Life, which stars Ethan Hawke and Pedro Pascal. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that one? Um, it really was a treat because I had been trying to get tickets to this for ages, um, as I'm sure any <laughs> Toronto critics industry anyone will know it's not easy to, to get into any kind of conversation things um however my partner an hour less than an hour before the screening texted me and was like I got tickets so um I was pretty thrilled about that um just because I, I love Alma Jovar um and I did quite like the human voice uh his last short so I, I was pretty optimistic uh for this one but the premise is basically Two former lovers, the beautiful Ethan Hawke and Pedro Pascal, meet for the first time in 25 years, kind of just around the time that a murder is being pieced together in town. Ethan Hawke is the town sheriff, obviously. Um, and uh, it's strange. It was strange to see because there was also a, a large um, kind of comically <laughs> um, slapstick esque <laughs> uh, conversation between Cameron Bailey and Pedro Almodovar in which the mics went out every two seconds. They brought like five mics on stage. We were just all kind of sitting in silence looking at them. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was really, really funny. They started shouting at one point so that we could hear them. Uh, super unclear. But what I got from that was the, the kind of sustained idea that's been going around about um, this being... Pedro's response to Brookback Mountain, which I find strange. I find that it's difficult to, to understand because his, <laughs> to my knowledge, his, uh, his break with that movie is that um, there wasn't enough authentic sexuality. There wasn't enough um, kind of like, use the word animalistic. And I was like, well, of course, um, ideas of sex in that movie. And then Strange Way of Life omits the sex scene entirely. He okay. said, I want to do this in ellipses. And I was like, absolutely. But it is strange that <laughs> this would be the, the one for him to do it in. But um, yeah, it gets really fun and phantom thready towards the end. It's my, my, big, my biggest critique of anything tends to be it should have been a short film. Every movie that I think has a decent idea should have been a short film. And this one, the whole time I was like, this should be a feature. Oh. Like, why are we, we were running through it. We were really sprinting through these characters who like have this incredible decades long tension, mm -hmm. but it's very difficult to kind of latch onto that. And also it, I just felt very aware the entire time. I'm like, yeah, that's Ethan Hawke. And that's just Ethan Hawke being Ethan Hawke. I didn't, <laughs> yeah. I didn't find him as persuasive. Um, yeah. Well, I have heard multiple people actually say that they wished it had been a feature. So that's very interesting. And that's not, it's not something you hear about a short that often. Um, yeah, I'm super excited to see that one. Um, but maybe it's time, it's time to get into the big sandwich 
of today's viewing. Sink our teeth into the meat. So, of so, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna make my first. My, so, my first comment about the beast. This is like a, a podcast personal to someone out there listening. Uh-huh. If, you, if you're listening, to the guy in the row beside me, who got up and left the film. <laughs> so many walkouts so, in but, this one. But, but to this guy, yeah, you've got naked Leia Seydoux in black goo. Waking up and being told you need to go to a discotheque where it's 1972. And that's when you leave. My question to you is, what do you want <laughs> from movies and life? Why are you walking out? I mean, maybe you had an appointment or you, <laughs> yeah, you never you're know. hungry. But like leaving that movie at that point, yeah. I just, this is the sort of movie where I am. I'm very, very fair to the fact that people won't like it. And then I feel very bad for those people. Oh God, Adam. Be- because because it's You're it's, like their inner life is so impoverished. No, not their inner life is impoverished. Just I had so much fun. And yeah. I just want everyone to have fun. And I think that Benello is on a, a heater right now because we are both uh, we haven't we I didn't know you think of B because we waited to do this. Like yeah. but I think we both are very fond of coma. Yes. A non distributed but awesome horror movie. Amazing movie that, and also just uh, to back up a little, this, so The Beast is the new film by Bertrand Bonello, yeah. French director known for films like Yves Saint Laurent, um, House of Tolerance. Tolerance. No, like, no, there's no, like another movie that no, sounds similar. No, uh, let me, Nocturama. Yeah, let me just say that again. Um, so The Beast is the new movie by the director Bertrand Bonello, the French filmmaker known for movies like Nocturama, Yves Saint Laurent, uh, House of Tolerance, and... Um, zombie child and then Adam the movie Adam just referenced this crazy pandemic movie uh, that uh, we showed at the New York Film Festival a couple years ago but um, yeah it doesn't have any distribution yet to my knowledge in the US Coma um, which I just loved and I think we'll get to we'll get to like what really works in The Beast I think it does it does feel like a bit of it does feel a little bit like an extension of coma to me yeah, in the hugely. sense that it's like, it feels like this movie was made inside Bonello's head, which is a very weird place with its own logic and also very creepy, but creepy in a touching way. And while watching coma, I, I felt truly that it was Lynchian in, and that's not a word I like to use throw around loosely, you know, but people love to throw that word around. And so I try to be careful. I think coma really, which was about, which was really like a kind of a video letter to his, to his daughter during the pandemic, but it's about a child who kind of disappears in the world of the internet uh, and this kind of solipsistic space during the pandemic. And there's all these, but it's not really plotted. There's all these, there's like this YouTube video series that she watches and then there's like these strange subconscious sequences in the woods and there's some scenes of surveillance, but it all just so perfectly captured the mix of emotions I went through during the pandemic without using gimmicky lockdown filmmaking flourishes, you know, but it really nailed the vibe. And that is also something the Beast nails a vibe more than it nails anything else. It, it does not make sense in many ways, but it just nails a, a feeling that you will, that will seem both new to you, like in the way that it's sinister, in the way that Lynch movies, you watch them, 
and you you have that rare experience that like I am feeling something I've never felt before. Well, it's like it's a mix for me of two things that are all about anticipation and arrival. But then when they go together, they're tough, which is like, how do you hybridize yearning and dread? Right. Yeah. This is about yearning in a very romantic way between these two figures. I hesitate to call them characters, yeah. whether they are individuals or multiple, you know, reincarnations of each other. Played uh, by Leah Seydoux and George McKay. And George McKay, who yeah. exist in sort of like the, uh, you know, the early, what is it, the late 19th, early 20th century. They, they certainly exist in our moments. They exist in a bizarre future that's made up of all these embedded pasts that you can experience. And they yearn for each other because they are sort of an eternal pair. Uh, and there's also incredible dread because in each of their incarnations, there is something that happens to stymie or worse, like obliterate and disfigure that love. And they're both aware seemingly at different times and in different personas that they're trying to either remember their past or anticipate their future and see what's what. And this is done through all these different means. There's like... Um, like sensory deprivation, mind experiments, there's fortune telling, there's like online psychic readings. Lee City's character is hypnotized, which is also something carried over from coma that's very mm -hmm. interesting. And the coherence is not a coherence of narrative. It's a coherence of vibe and dread. And it's also a a, a film that has these incredible moments of recognition, not just like little gimmicky cameos and stuff, which we can get to, but this long section set in LA in 2014, which we talk about audience reactions and laughing. The audience today found this incarnation of the, the uh, McKay character hysterical, this kind of yeah. lonely video diary incel and, until you realize where his dialogue is from, which is from the real life shooter, Elliot Roger. Yeah, and then and the audience is like chastened and very. I recognize that just because recently I saw a documentary yeah. about incels, like a video essay, in which the in which Elliot Rogers' uh, videos were featured. So I immediately recognized that, and and again, just to back up a little bit. So as Adam was saying, these characters, we kind of meet them as they are living these three different timelines simultaneously. Each time they are connected in some kind of romantic yep. plot, but there is impending disaster and, you know, of, of various scales. And historicized impending disaster, like the Paris flood. Exactly. So the real. Paris flood and then the 2014 sequence has earthquakes because they're on the west coast of the U.S. But there is, yes, this, in this particular incarnation in 2014, Lea Seydoux plays a French model who's just moved to LA to try her luck, you know, in the modeling industry here. And uh, George McKay's character is an incel based on Elliot Rogers. And so we meet him as he's like recording these videos about how lonely he is, how it sucks to be a man in his 30s who has had no girlfriends, how much he hates women. He hates women because he deserves them and they don't give him, you know, any attention. And that is... It's, you know, what you were saying, Adam, like yearning and dread, that's the sequence where, that's the section where that comes together so powerfully. I found it deeply unsettling, of course, the incel parts, and I found it really audacious how he, I don't know, Bonello plays with us throughout that section where there are moments where you think that this is going to be 
you know, this kind of cliche of like, all this man needs is some tender love. All he needs is a hug, right? And so there is this genuinely kind kind of romantic um, undercurrent to it. But then it will go into like this extremely sinister nihilistic zone. And it kind of goes back and forth between that, partly because Leah Seydoux's character is a cipher and at the same time a very kind of emotional person who is looking for something through all of these timelines and stories so there's like this very real sense of yearning Yearning. coming from her character but that like i found it so unsettling this being on this teetering edge of like this is really dark oh maybe this is sentimental no this is really dark i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna argue that in a moment where horror is being contested very strongly Right. We talked about Hamaguchi's new one yesterday and the echoes of Kyoshi Kurosawa, but that's singular to that movie. I mean, I'm going to make the argument that Benello is the best working horror filmmaker, even if he's not really made a single horror movie outside of Coma. This film is very scary at times, Oof. The Beast, especially when it commits to that big chunk of Lynch. All the stuff in the glass and steel apartment with surveillance and the low bass rumbling and even and i don't think this is intentional but this is how our brains work you know Sidhu's haircut reminded me a bit of watson mulholland drive and he sticks with it for a long time the thing about the structure of the film is this is what convinces what confuses people to thinking it's sloppy it's not even the three timelines are not it's, given equal weight they're not three chapters no. or something yeah he really commits for a long time to the 2014 stalker yeah. stuff. And yeah, and so, yeah, the, the scene you're referencing where I don't want to give too much away, but Leah Seydoux thinks um, there might be an intruder in this large Los Angeles home she's living in. Where everything in is visible. Exactly. It's all see-through. It's a very lavish home. Yeah. God, that whole sequence is one of the creepiest things I've seen in recent times. And that's where I, and I completely, I mean, I was also thinking of Mulholland Drive. I don't know how intentional that is, but... My, my viewing companion, who I will not name, a well-known Canadian actor, like heart and throat kind of viewing, you know, it's scary. No, I gasped many times. And I also, you know, the future sequences, I think those might have been the ones that put some people off because they really are extremely weird in an aimless way. Um it's not a very fleshed out dystopia. You just know you're in 2044 and people are undergoing some kind of process to, I guess, to rid themselves of it's like painful Scientology. It's like, memories. It's Scientology. If you purge pain. <laughs> no, it is. Okay. You, purge, you purge painful memories towards a state of purity. It's the same thing that the Philip Seymour Hoffman was hawking in The Master. Okay, it's Scientology. I, I yeah. mean, it's not, it's not named. And yeah. for some reason you have... Uh, I don't want to mispronounce her name, but is Guslagi Malanga from ah. Saint Omer is just like a care doll. This is the thing. Is, it's so random, and it's hard to keep a straight she's, face. And she's, she's gorgeous and yeah. just you know of such an arresting but, presence. But like at one point, she's just there for Leah Sidhu when Leah Sidhu's in her like goo tank, and she's like, "Hi, I'm uh, I'm I'm a doll. What do you want me to do?" And the viewer's like. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they just like, why don't we go dance? And they're just in a discotheque. And then they just go to a discotheque. And at some point, she's like, what do you want to do? Do you want to play? you want to fuck? And Leia was like, no. No. Um, but but and it, it really has like very eccentric cameos around the edges. Like we don't have to go down the rabbit hole. But like, you know, Dasha from Red Scare is in it. There's an audio, there's an audio cam- cam- cameo from Xavier Dolan. There's actors from Benello's other films. And all of this was also supposed to be with his former collaborator. 
collaborator with Gaspar Ullier, who the film is dedicated yeah. to, which is moving as well. Right. And it's why all the blase... What a strange w- film to be in memoriam, right? To say the least. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I'm just, just, just going to... I'm just coming out and saying, yeah. you know, I, I, I like stuff like this yeah. and I like this a lot. I will. Yeah, I will say that I think maybe this goes for you too, Adam. This is not a film to digest quickly. No. So I think I will be talking about this for a while and I will be trying to articulate my thoughts about it. I don't think I could like I saw it a few hours ago and I really I came out and people were like, what do you think? What do you think? And I, I, I hadn't even accumulated the film in my head, but it just left me feeling things that I had not felt before. And I love it when a movie can actually conjure an emotion in me, you know, or conjure a feeling in me. So we didn't, yeah. we didn't, we didn't even mention just in passing, I think it's better to say not very little about this, but it's also all based on a Henry James story. Which That's is right. Oh my God. I totally forgot it's based, about it. It's based that. on this Henry James story, which is sort of about like capitalism in the early 20th. I mean, it's a, Shall we say a free adaptation? Right? Yeah, let's. Uh, I I will pull up the name of the story. It's called. It's called we... the Beast, or the, is, is it the it Beast is in the Jungle? called the, the Beast. The Beast or the Beast in the Jungle? I think it's the Beast in the Jungle. Actually, yeah. yeah. Okay, so it is a yeah. It's a lewd. A, a lewd. It is a lewd and loose <laughs> adaptation <is> <laughs> of the Beast in the Jungle, which I have not read, but there was an adaptation of that film in in Berlin this year too by you know a different filmmaker that was like a club movie, and this movie has some. I'm a sucker for club scenes in movies, and this one has, speaking of creepy scenes, an incredible clubbing scene where Leia Seydoux is just like, I think it's drill rap or something. Yeah, and it's, she's dr- just, it's drill rap, yeah. Yeah, and she's just like... Head- she must be in like the 2018 room of the disco district of the future, because <laughs> every corner in the future you can go to like recreation disco, yeah. which has the same group of bitchy women... I think being mean to her in each disco. I thought it was the same disco and every night it has a different year as a theme. And all the songs are from that year. But this is in the 2014 section and so she's like, you know, dancing to this insane music and George McKay's character is just in a corner and the lights flash in and out and you see him. It's, you know, all these little touches that bring in so many different genres. It's, It's quite... It's just a completely uncharacterizable movie, and maybe we'll leave it at that for now. Easily 15 Oscar nominations. <laughs> <laughs> that and the Rowdy Judah. Clean sweep. Clean sweep. Yeah. Um, well, we're at 45 minutes, so I think a good place as any to wrap up, and we got through a really nice haul of movies. Uh, so thank you to my Canadian correspondents here. Saffron, thank you for... Uh, your Film Comment podcast debut and hope to have you again soon. Thanks kindly. And thank you, Adam, per usual. My pleasure. And uh, to everyone listening, thanks for listening and stay tuned for more from this year's Toronto Film Festival. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.